Um, we do have a need for um, people to um, make the food. Um, for, we're going to have um, a reception that will be in the back of the auditorium where we'll have food spread out, and there's still a need for preparation and perhaps uh, serving the food. There are sign-up tables in the back, so be aware of that if uh, the Lord is prompting you to serve in any way. That's a way that you can do that. I think also that instead of providing uh, flowers for the funeral, uh, you can give a, um, an offering towards the school, and I think that that, you know, you might see Pastor Nate Davis along those lines. Well, let me read our text together this morning, Ezra chapter 4. We are moving through this book of the Bible, I think, at uh, an appropriate pace. I don't want us to move too quickly, but I also don't want to move too slowly because uh, there's a lot here and yet there's a, a big picture idea about rebuilding that we find in the book of Ezra. So I'm going to take a smaller chunk this morning, but it will lead us into and ultimately through chapter 4 in the weeks to come. Verses 1 through 5 this morning, Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers, houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The title of my message this morning is being a guardian of the truth or guarding the truth. And I want to just bring that idea up. Being a guard. Being a protector. You know, there are professional protectors or guards in military and police. Then there's more of a common role of protector or guard that comes to all of us men who have families. There's something I think that is inspired in the heart of each man as he gets his family and every night puts them to bed and locks down the house where in his heart he's saying, I'm protective. Now I know that also happens in a mommy's heart as she protects her children, protects her household, but I want to emphasize the role of the man because I'm going to present a, a, a story about that. You know, Jesus called this role the strong man's role and said in Mark 3:27, unless the strong man is bound, the house cannot be plundered. Now, something like that, you know, happened to me or something along the lines of being a protector happened to me one time when my wife and I, we had had a house built. Uh, it was our first sort of brand new house that we poured blood, sweat, and tears into, you know, with a builder and 
we had poured all our money into the process, and so we didn't have any money left over for blinds downstairs. And so the house was sort of, um, you know, vacated upstairs with blinds, and, you know, it looked normal. But downstairs, you could just kind of look in, and we were on a busy street, and there were probably stickers still on the, the new windows, etc. And so it looked like maybe it was occupied, but nobody was there yet. And so one night around one in the morning I heard this it was ding dong ding dong ding dong ding dong and so my protection mode uploaded and when my protection mode uploads it might look differently than some of yours but I came conscious when I was about halfway down the steps towards the door now it could have been anybody right maybe somebody who had a need but for, for me, in my mind, that person was trying to break in. So I started shouting as I'm coming to at the door saying, get away from the door and just shouting. You know, great pastoral wisdom, right? And because as I looked down, I, you know, there are those little narrow windows besides, beside the door and I saw a face peering in like this and I thought, ooh, that's someone from our college singles group I and it's a female I recognize her I'm yelling at her right and so Judy at this point is you know you know coming down she's putting on sort of a nightgown robe and just coming down the steps and I'm like you know honey just take this it's such and such and that person is in need and so she opens the door and goes whoa that person is dressed in full gang regalia right and it was not the person I thought that I saw <laughs> You know, dreadlocks and the whole nine yards, and this person standing there stoned out of her mind. And Judy shuts the door and goes, uh, who are you? Can I help you? And so I'm returning down to protector mode, and that person was not leaving, did not get scared away. And so we began to shout the person away and say that that person needed to leave. And she did. So we kind of nervously go back to bed. About four in the morning, I feel stirred again. Maybe it was an hour later, hour or two later, but I felt stirred again, heard something. Obviously, if the ice maker, you know, makes a noise, I'm downstairs again because of what happened. But I look out the window and I see this gal casing the house across the street that's back in the woods, and she's using her cell phone light through the, the, the windows. And so, again, protection mode kicks in. And we call 911. The police car goes by the house, misses the house. She runs into the shadows. I'm on with 911 dispatch saying, send the person back the other way. They're in the alcove. And that, the 911 dispatch said, whatever you do, don't leave the house. Well, I'm running out in the street, you know. <laughs> Again, stupid mode, but protection mode. I'm thinking I want this person incarcerated and taken away. And finally, the, the officer didn't shoot me, and I pointed you know, to where that person was, and she was hauled away. So anyway, it's an interesting role that, that for many of us we've experienced that almost seems different than how we were made. Some people were made to be protectors, but in one sense we're all called to be a protector in one form or another. And that is the case for all of us as Christians. All of us Christians are supposed to be and called to be guardians of the truth. You might not think that this is an important role. You might think, well, what does that mean? We're supposed to give the truth. We're supposed to live the truth, but we're also supposed to guard the truth? Absolutely. And I want to challenge you with something up front that I'll end with, but evangelism is probably 50% guarding the truth as much as the other 50, which is giving the truth. 
It's, it's keeping the gospel clear in terms of how it is presented, in terms of how it is understood. Everybody wants to water down the gospel to make it something that everybody can have a piece of without feeling the full weight of it or the accountability of it or the sting of the gospel, or the call to repentance from the gospel, the holiness of God that's presented in the gospel, that exposes our sin need, and then the grace of the gospel, where it's not our works, but it's all by grace that we are saved. That is the clarifying, protecting role that we have as Christians with the gospel. Paul was very concerned with this in Timothy. If you turn in your Bibles to... 1 Timothy, you'll see this. In 1 Timothy, you have Paul who is telling his son in the faith to guard the gospel. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20 says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. I mean, what, what's one of the last things Paul says to his son in the faith? Protect this thing. Protect the gospel. 2 Timothy 1. Verse 12, he says, But I am not ashamed to suffer, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God guards the gospel. Verse 13, God's guarding the sound words. And then verse 14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In Jude 3, we are called as Christians to, to contend or fight for the faith, the faith, the once for all delivered gospel. We're to fight for that. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We're, we're standing it up like a citadel for the truth. We are guardians of the gospel. Against who? Who, who cares? Who's, who's after the gospel? Well, the world is, is always trying to attack the gospel in subtle ways. Just water it down. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it in terms of food. You know, food is, is good to eat when it's nutritious and sort of sitting there. But if a kid comes along, not one of my kids, but if a kid comes along and takes um, a cup of water and waters it down and leaves it out overnight, it, 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 a metamorphosis takes place, right? Something that was attractive and warm and steamy and nutritious becomes nasty, and then it becomes moldy and gross, and, and it's not just not nutritious, it's, it's sort of going against our, our, our system if we eat something like that. It's anti-nutritious, it's unnutritious, right? It's something that we don't want to eat, and it's less appealing, it's less attractive. I think one of the reasons why people don't take the gospel seriously is because they don't see it in its full glory. The gospel needs to be presented clearly enough and in terms of the stark contrast between being of the world and being of Christ, for it to be compelling for people. People want to water it down and say, oh, you know, it's palatable, it's good for you, and you can have what you, know, what you want, but you also need Jesus. And people go, that's, that's just weird. That's milksop gospel. That's not powerful gospel. I was talking to a guy who is the area representative for Young Life. He lives down in Sitka. I met him this week at a lunch, and he was a fireball. I really appreciated him, and he wanted to give his testimony, so he started talking about 
uh, how he went to a Christian camp and, and he didn't have any time for it and he was in high school. And I'm resonating with this because I got saved in high school and he's saying he got to the last sermon, the last lecture and it was on the cross and he said for an hour he was, he was taken away from being concerned about his girlfriend to the cross and the gospel. But he knew in his heart that for him to go into faith, into Christ, he had to go all the way in. And so he didn't believe yet. He, he held back and thought about it and went home. And about two, three weeks later, got with his, I think, young life director or youth pastor and in a Honda Civic sat next to him. And he knew he had considered the cost and he was all in for Christ and gave his life. And he said, you know what? Nobody had to tell me to go to church. Nobody had to tell me to read my Bible. Nobody had to tell me how to, that I needed to worship God. It just was happening. And that's that's gospel transformation from a clear gospel where you consider the cost and you're all in. It's the gospel. That's what we are called to protect. And in a real way back in Ezra, that's what the people of God were doing in this situation. In Ezra chapter 4, you say, where's the gospel in Ezra? Well, in the Old Testament, the temple where they were obeying the Lord and they were re establishing the presence of God in Jerusalem by building the temple of God. This was the gospel witness in the Old Testament of who God is, the one true God and his goodness. And by the way, a temple sacrificial system where they were slaying lambs, which was foreshadowing the coming Messiah. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. It was the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ that was to be established right here. So this, this was a holiness moment where they were protecting the gospel in the Old Testament. It says, now when the adversaries, verse 1, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard. Stop there. Who were the adversaries? This is very important for us to understand who the enemies were to really get the text. This is the key that unlocks this whole um, first section. Who were these enemies? Why is it that uh, the children of Israel were not allowing the adversaries, these people, to come and help them build. What was the harm in that? Well, first of all, we're learning to guard against enemy schemes. We need to know who these enemies are. And they were taking a front door approach. And it was a temptation to compromise. These enemies, these enemies, or these adversaries, were people who were transplants from Babylonia down into Samaria. Okay, the word adversary, it, it's the same word that's used for Satan himself. It talks about, uh, it, it, it's a word that means narrow. It's a word that can mean hard pebble flints. It's, it's a word that's used in terms of distressing people. That's who these people were characteristically. They were causing harm. And even though they were going to come in the name of, hey, let's be friends. Let's do this together. They were coming very affably. Let's be ecumenical. Let's build a coalition. Let's just make this work out. Even though they were that, underneath the surface, the Bible exposes that they were enemies. They were transplants. Remember Sennacherib, he, he had come and he had taken over the northern kingdom of Israel and, and sort of was used by God to put those people in exile in Syria, in Babylonian captivity. Well, what they would do is uh, these rulers, the second ruler here that's, that's mentioned, Esarhaddon, es es king of Assyria, he had actually brought in transplants from Babylon 
into this Samaritan region. I want to explain that from a text. Turn over to 2 Kings. This will open up who these people were because in 2 Kings, the writer describes them to a T. 2 Kings 17. This is very important to understand this text by understanding these enemies. Verse 24. It says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them into or in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. There was a swapping that took place. They wanted to take possession of Samaria. And they were, verse 25, dwelling there, but they did not fear the Lord. Now, God sent lions to them, and actually the lions were eating them up. And so a leader said, hey, we need to stop this. We understand that this is judgment from their God, and so we need to learn about their God and their customs. And so we're going to hire one of the priests that we've shipped up to Babylon. We're going to bring him back and have him do an education system with the people here so we can learn how to worship their God in their land. How did that come off? Well... Um, they actually, it says in verse 29, every nation still made gods of its own, but put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. But then verse 32, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of, of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, look at this. This is very telling to where these people's hearts were. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. So what did, they wanted it both ways. They, 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 they learned the customs. They learned how to worship the God of Israel in God's way, but they also wanted to keep their own gods at the same time. This is very typical to even American society. You have a lot of people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. People who will even say Jesus is God and the Savior. But when people will not say Jesus is the only way, that's when you know that they're really not worshiping the true Jesus. That's it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul condemns this kind of worship and says, look, you know what this is? This is, this is having a, another Jesus or a different gospel. And he says Satan comes disguised as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. I think this is like a satanic attack on the children of Israel. It's, it's trying to have it both ways. Now these people, look at them. What's the harm in their request? I mean, they're, they're making a, a, a request here. It says they approached, um, you know, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. They heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, they had no problem with them until they were, the, the children of Israel were going to build. As soon as they were going to build to the God of Israel, Elohim of Israel. As soon as they were going to name the, God as the one true God and say, this is the one way to worship. This is the true God. The word Yahweh is mentioned and the word Elohim is mentioned in verse 1. That God of Israel, as soon as they were putting you know, brick and mortar in place to say this is the true temple, that's when the attackers came. That's when the adversaries showed up. That's when it was a problem. 
wasn't a problem when they were just there kind of worshiping on their own, but it was when they were taking actual visible steps to say, this is God. Because you know what? When you worship God and you say that God is the only way and the narrow road of Christ is the only way, what does that say about everybody else's religion? When you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man can come to the Father but through him, what does that say to everybody else's religion? It says everybody else is wrong or false. And that's when the warfare kicks up. And guess what? Israel is going to be dogged from this point on all the way through the end of the book of Nehemiah. The war is beginning. The battle of wits is beginning where Satan wants to undermine God's work and God's kingdom mission and God's rebuilding mission because a people, an Old Testament church is standing up and saying, this is the one true God. That's where the line is drawn in the sand and the gospel is being promoted. Now look how they approached um, the people, they did it in such an affable way. It was a temptation to, co to compromise. Their offer came disguised as good intentions. Disguised as good intentions. Look how they came. They approached Zerubbabel. They went right to the top. They went right through the front door and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. I mean, they've got some reasonable excuses and reasons to jump in. This is just a 50,000 you know, or plus group of people that's um, doing a massive building project for God. And they're saying, they're saying, look, there's a legitimate need. We want, we want to pool our resources. We, we are helping hands. We're no problem here. Does that sound familiar with Christian movements where people say, look, I want to jump in. I want to be a part. We can, we can bring it all together. I've got no problem, by the way, with coalitions and people working together as long as the gospel is not watered down. You see what I'm saying? That's very important to understand. There's no problem with people jumping in and pooling resources together as long as the doctrine of the gospel is protected and guarded and clarified. And that's what was at stake here in this text. I just, I, I want to make that abundantly clear to you. It's no problem getting together with other Christians to do things, but never to the expense of truth. Ever. Reminds me of a, a a meeting I had with a one-on-one -on -one with a guy who was leaving the local church. And he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to join up with this group that meets in a home. And they were part of this revolutionary movement, you know, sort of that George Barna has sponsored in a book called Revolution. And basically it's the idea of getting together in homes. I've got no problem with that. Getting together and eating together to, to worship God through fellowship. I've got no problem with that. It's a non-traditional preaching style where they sort of dialogue and just read through the Bible. I've got a little bit of problem with that, but as long as they're opening God's word, no problem there. But then I said, where's the doctrinal statement? We don't have one. Why would you do that? I've got a problem with that. I've got a problem with that. I do. And that is because the word of God, the teaching, the doctrine of scripture is what holds us to the gospel. 
What do we believe? And I think being able to document and proclaim what we believe about the gospel, that Jesus is God and man, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is the one way to heaven, that you believe in God who is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Word of God. You, you define church biblically. I think that, that fleshing that out, even on paper, is so important so that we understand it. And in the New Testament, they did that. Philippians 2, where it speaks of Jesus emptying himself to be the perfect Savior and sacrifice, King of kings and Lord of lords. That was what the church sang as their, their hymn in the church, and that was documented doctrine in the church. Uh, where, where Paul is telling Timothy to guard the entrustment or the truth or the doctrine or the teaching. That's what we're talking about. When the Jerusalem Council met in Acts 15 and they were guarding the gospel and talking about how to approach new Gentile believers where we're not going to offend them, but we're going to protect the fact that you're saved by grace through faith alone. That's what we're talking about, about documenting doctrine. And where a church says, well, we don't care about doctrine. We'll just let that aside. That's where it gets really, really dangerous because then anything goes and all of a sudden people will go away from the gospel rather than sticking with it. Well, here in the text again, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. Well, we just learned from 2 Kings 17 that they were not worshiping the same God. They were doing it superficially. They were putting priests in play. They were doing it functionally, right? They were even doing it geographically. Do you see that? They said, look, we've been sacrificing to him, verse 2, ever since the days that we were left there by Esar Hadan. We, we, you know, ever since that, you know, pagan Babylonian king who came after Sennacherib, uh, you know, ever since that happened, we were left there. But we've got it all straightened out, right? We're, we're neighbors. We're right next to you. We're functionally doing the same thing. We're, we're attending. We're attending this land that's, that's right where you are. We're all in the club, right? It's all good. Let's build together. That was the offer. That was the idea here. It sounds so nice and good with clear justifications. You know, coming to church, attending church, or even functioning in the church does not make you an authentic Christian. Right? I mean, you can do all the right stuff and you say, look, I want to build with the church. Let me in. Let me be part of this. But unless God transforms your heart first, then you're not part of the church. And God regenerates people, calls people, transforms people. And then you serve, and then you're functioning in your gifts in the body of Christ. Remember in Ezra chapter 2, we talked about how there were certain people who were traveling back out of exile who could not find their paperwork. They could not find their, their birth certificate, per se, that, that said that they were of the true nation of Israel. And so they were not allowed to worship and join in and participate in the worship of God in the temple they were trying to figure that out, but they were actually called unclean at that point. You know, the second reason why, um, um, why this was dangerous to allow them to build together is they, they would have uh, bonded through building. If they would have said to these uh, sort of, you know, 
Assyrian, Babylonian transplants. They said, yeah, let's build together. You know, what's the harm of that? Guess what happens? You bond together. The New Testament warns against this and says only to marry in the Lord. Well, what happens is when you bond, you marry and you intermix and you intermingle. And, you know, in the New Testament, no problem with different races coming together and being married as long as you're being married in the Lord. There's everything wonderful about that, right? But in the Old Testament system, to marry outside of the line of Israel was, in many cases, in most cases in the Old Testament, it meant that you were swerving away from the one true God. You were marrying into paganism. I think that often uh, is a is a danger in the New Testament church, in our church, in churches in general, where people will make friends with people who are unbelievers. And it's no problem having, you know, a, a nice, kind relationship and friendship, but there are levels of friendship making where you make it with people who are non-believers, where you can begin to give up your convictions just to keep the friendship warm. And it can sway your heart away from being effective in the local church. We've got to guard against that. Well, look, there were clear justifications. We've kind of already talked about um, them here. They were saying we, we worship, we sacrifice, we live in the same place. And the remedy here is one key thing, discernment. Why, why is it that the temple project was protected? The leadership used discernment. They used discernment. Look at this, verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The remedy here is to use discernment. And discernment was based on doctrinal clarity. They rebuffed this offer, and they used an idiom here, just saying, look, you know, you, you, have, you have nothing to do with building um, the house with, with us, a house to our God. They were being very narrow and exclusive in their message, saying nothing to do. It was an isolating measure here. And the discernment was based, was measured in its application. Actions speak louder than words, Right? It's one thing to say something. It's another thing actually to follow through. And they actually followed through and said, we're, we're, we alone are going to be the ones who will build here. That was it. But notice they were very strategic. Look at verse 3 again. They actually appealed to the decree that Cyrus had given them. They said, look, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, he's the one behind all of this. So the president of the world has instructed us to do it this way. And we need to separate from you. We're not going to have you be involved. You know, there's nothing wrong with the church um, appealing to government for protection. As long as one thing is clear, the gospel is not jeopardized. There's no, nothing wrong with getting funding from the government or other things. As long as you are protecting and guarding the gospel first. Now, that was the front door approach. The enemies come into the front door. But as soon as they were rebuffed, they moved to the back door. And I'll tell you what, this is the harder part of the Christian life, is dealing with enemies who are trying to come through the back door. 
I was told after I gave that story, I've given that story many times to people personally about someone coming to the front door, you know, banging on the door, ringing the doorbell. And someone said, hey, you know, when somebody's at the front door, guess what? Somebody's also probably at the back door looking in your house. <laughs> that's eerie to hear about. But I'll tell you what, that's exactly what these people did. They didn't stop with the front door. They went through the back door, and they actually shut things down. If you skip ahead, this back door approach, look at verse 24, the end of this chapter. Then the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem, guess what? Stopped, and it was ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Sixteen years, this backdoor approach is going to bring the work of God to a standstill. Backdoor, insidious ministry from Satan himself. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. The enemy will use intimidation. The people of the land here are adversaries and they moved immediately to a bottom up approach from top down to bottom up. And look, three participles here, verse four, they discouraged, they were ongoingly discouraging the people. They made them afraid, they were ongoingly doing that. And then they were bribing counselors ongoingly. These are, these are backdoor approaches, insidious approaches. And the first category is they were using intimidation to stop the work of God. Somehow they were able, and we don't see the techniques or methods, they're not clearly defined or described here in verse 4. We don't know exactly how they were discouraging the people, but these enemies got the people to begin to believe that they were not going to be protected by Cyrus if they didn't join in the work with the Assyrians or if they didn't stop altogether. They're going, look, you know, you've appealed to Cyrus and he decreed for you to do this. And, and it was as if the enemies were getting their minds off of God, off of the mission, off of the gospel and saying, hey, look around. Cyrus, he's 900 miles away. He's not going to protect you. And so you got to stop. And it was a bully technique to get them to stop to do, stop to do the work of God. We don't know. We don't know how these people were bullied, but let me guess that many of you know what it feels like to be bullied. Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? If you've ever been bullied or been intimidated to stop working, you know that that works. <laughs> you know the effects of being bullied, of being stood down where you are afraid. The word afraid here in verse 4 means to be terrified. They were terrified to keep working for God. Terrified. They did not want to keep going. They were discouraged, first of all. It's the idea that, that the, the idea of being discouraged here literally means that your hands are going weak. That's what it means literally. It's the opposite of being encouraged where Hebrews talks about strengthening your hands and your feet in Hebrews chapter 13 or 12 and Isaiah 35 talks about having strengthened hands. These people's hands were going weak. They didn't want to go any farther at all. You ever been discouraged before? Do you ever experience the power of discouragement in your life? You ever hear a message over and over again in a way that you begin to believe it about yourself? And it deflates you where you can't go on. Your hands and your legs have gone weak. 
you know, I think we, we get shocked, don't we? And we know that, you know, some people, one person in particular, um, probably died by overdosing on drugs, a celebrity, you know, someone who you think has it all, has everything going for them. And, you know, another person recently was, was ODing, and I believe her life was spared, another celebrity. I mean, but when we first hear these stories, there's something in us that's surprised, right? A little bit where we say, man, they've got everything to live for. They've got all the amenities of the world. They've got everything going for them. They've got, you know, a, a good marriage or a bad marriage. You can buy your way out of that one and get a good marriage, buy a new marriage, right? You got bad kids, you give those away, you buy new kids. You just, you know, you just, you can pay for whatever you want, right? And there's something, this, this worldly thought in our minds that believe, um, that believes, why would a person do that to themselves? They've got everything. But you can't manufacture peace, right? You can't manufacture what the gospel gives to you in your heart. And discouragement and depression can cannibalize the soul. And that's what was going on with these people. They were intimidated. They were being bullied. They were terrified. And they were stopping. Stopping the work of God. Saying, I give up and the backdoor approach was working. They were made afraid. It's literally the idea of, of being fearful as if you've got warfare against you. You're in a battle and you could be killed. That kind of terror. How powerful is intimidation? You know, I found this from something Ravi Zacharias um, uses and, and he used in a speech he gave. It was about Joseph Stalin and the power of intimidating leadership. It's a lesson of the plucked chicken. Some of you have probably heard this. It was a Soviet novelist who sort of paraphrased this scenario that, that where Stalin was standing before generals. It said, he said on one occasion, so it was narrated, Stalin called for a live chicken and proceeded to use it to make an unforgettable point before some of his henchmen. Forcefully clutching the chicken in one hand with the other, he began to systematically pluck out its feathers as the chicken struggled in vain to escape. He continued with the painful denuding until the bird was completely stripped. Now you watch, Stalin said, as he placed the chicken on the floor and walked away with some breadcrumbs in his hand. Incredibly, the fear-crazed chicken hobbled toward him and clung to the legs of his trousers... Stalin threw a handful of grain to the bird and it began to follow him around the room. He turned to his dumbfounded colleagues and said quietly, this is the way to rule the people. Did you see how the chicken followed me for food? Even though I had caused it such torture, people are like that chicken. If you inflict inordinate pain on them, they will follow you for food the rest of their lives. You know, the opposite power of discouragement is encouragement. And I'll tell you what, we have treasure in the gospel where we don't have to stay discouraged. No matter how discouraged you are, the gospel can bring you back to being encouraged once again. And every great leader that I've ever read about or known about was an incredibly optimistic person. And the true optimism that you can have that is powerful, that is family changing, that is life changing, that will transform atmospheres, churches, and culture is being encouraged in the gospel. Where you realize 
just like Paul did, you know, that we are more than conquerors. When you say, look, death, where is your sting? I, I'm an overcomer, and I'm going through this life all the way to heaven, and I know that, and so I can be encouraged no matter what happens to me. It's Paul in the book of Romans that said, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bully you? I mean, if, if Christ in us is greater than Satan, then what enemy can really bully you? We're free if we're acting in faith and we're encouraged in the Lord. Well, the enemy keeps going after them and it's relentless because there's bribing of counselors in verse 5. Now, we don't know if the counselors were these paid professionals that insinuated themselves among the ranks. It, the method is not explained here. It's just the effect of it that we know is powerful here. We have people who are like wartime World War II propaganda that's being airdropped out of planes saying, look, stop the work, stop the building, you're unprotected. These were bribed counselors to give a message so that it would be a self-fulfilled prophecy that they would not do this work. You ever get around people like that? People that are just negative and naysayers and saying we can't do it, we can't go on. Well, that's what these people were paid to do. And they could have been in the back hallways up in Persia. I'm not sure if they were bribing, you know, up all the way in the highest court of the land in Babylonia at this point. We're not sure, but they were working the system. You know, there are professional counselors that we allow into our lives that tell us not to move forward in gospel ministry. And just as, you know, from World War I to World War II, the propaganda methods ramped up because the media got better, more excellent, more accessible, right? In the same way, now with phones, with internet, with TV, we've got preachers that are preaching, secular preachers who are professionals that are preaching messages that are anti-gospel, that are watering down the gospel, that are saying, don't give towards mission, don't be a part of the mission, give your life this way instead of giving your life for Christ. That's going on all the time. And it's enough bribed counselors that are, that are coming into our lives that can weaken our hands where we become discouraged altogether. And hopefully I can be a voice in your life to bring us back to the Bible. And the Bible itself can bring us back to being encouraged once again. We have to fight against this kind of influence. Ultimately in Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 it says that Haggai who's this prophet who's going to speak into the lives of these people. He ultimately says the question, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the houses lie in ruins? You've just, you're sitting back. You've given up. That's the wrong way to go. All right, now how do we apply this? Number one, take home point number one. Do you view yourself as one called to defend the gospel? Do you know you're a defender? You're either doing a good job or a bad job at it, but guess what? God selected you and chose you to be a Christian so that you would stand up for the gospel. That's, that's what you are. You were part of the protection of the truth. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Have you studied the gospel? I would encourage you, if you haven't, find a way to study it through media, through listening, through reading, through Bible study. Whatever it takes, you've got to get to know the gospel and know it well. Because God has entrusted us 
to protect it. And by protecting it, watch this. Do you think that protecting the gospel is personal evangelism? A lot of us carry a lot of evangelism guilt because we don't have the gift of used car salesmen, right? We don't feel like we can make the segues to people that we want to make segues to to bring up the gospel. But guess what? By protecting the gospel, by guarding its truthfulness from scripture, by what you don't say sometimes, by what you don't participate in, by what you do for the sake of the gospel, by where you attend church with a clear doctrinal statement. That is part of the protecting means that is evangelistic to people. It really is. In the mystery of God, it really is. That is a big part of our calling. Number two, allowing the world's sermons through media or unprotected influences to reign over you and or your family is subtle, is a subtle form of compromise. That is front door enemy attack. I'm convicted personally of that. I mean, there's a lot of media in my life, in my family's life, and I need to remember that those are preachers who are promoting a message, maybe not overtly, but subtly through um, the, the form of media, a show or whatever. There is a message. There is a value system. There is a worldview that's constantly inundating, inundating our minds and our children's minds and lives, and we need to be on guard about that. All right, number three, I just thought I would... Um, you know, sort of pick up something from C.S. Lewis with these last two points. It's a book called The Screwtape Letters, um, and it's a very interesting book once you understand the players. It's talking about two demons, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, two devils. You've got Uncle Screwtape, the mentor, and then you've got the mentee devil who's here on earth, and, and Uncle Screwtape is trying to counsel and mentor him to, to get a, a Christian to be derailed and the Christian is called the patient you know it's the patient and you're going after that person and then the enemy in that story capital E is God and so these devils are saying look don't let the enemy win out and so you have a scenario uh, with point three one satanic temptation is to make complacency normative for the Christian life the key is to get a churchgoer to go to church and go through the motions and then just lay back and not care whatsoever. I know we can't relate to that at all, right? This is completely irrelevant, right? But here, here's a paragraph anyway. Listen up. This is uh, the devil uh, screw tape counseling his, his uh, understudy. It says, a few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention in his prayers, but now you will find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. You ever get to that point where you're, you're dreading to go into prayer? His aim, this is kind of funny, his aim will be to let sleeping worms lie. <laughs> little twist there, but all that to say, it's convicting, it's potent. This is a major front or backdoor temptation to be complacent. You ever feel that? You ever just want to give up? My hands are weak, I'm discouraged, and so fine. That's not where we're supposed to stay. That's not where the gospel uh, leads us to. We're supposed to come back from that. Number four, another satanic temptation is uh, to make fear normative for the Christian life. Again, the devil at this point, this mentor, screw tape, is glad because a person may soon be called up for military service. So he's afraid. 
and, and he's, he's counseling this devil to tempt him. He says, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. It is your business to see that the patient, look at this, never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of the things he is afraid of. It's interesting here. We're going to have things that are scary in life. It's not, there, there's something normal about having some, some fear in our lives. We're not called to be robotic, right? We're not supposed to be stoic. We, we are relating to things that are scary but it's what we do with those things that matter. We're called to go through the storm. We're called to trust God and to say, Lord, you have brought this trial into my life right now. And I'm not going to lay back and be discouraged and let the enemy win. I'm going to move forward in gospel faith. And that's how we need to be. We need to learn in some ways what to do by being guardians of the truth, and then we need to learn in some ways by what not to do with this backdoor approach. We cannot stay face down. we got to get back up again and fix our eyes on Jesus and move forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. I thank you for um, the truthfulness of it. Lord, we are all called to a task that is bigger than what we can do in our own strength. I pray for those who are discouraged, who are faint-hearted, that you would build them up in the gospel. Lord, that no matter how much they feel like there are professional, bribed counselors who are, who are going against them, who are negative against their lives. Lord, let us all cling to the gospel and know that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, for the truth of this message. Lord, that we can stand firm and not waver, and not capitulate, but keep going in the race that's set in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want you to stay seated. I want to